1: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
2: Welcome in everybody to episode 195 of the podcast of the sweeping America, the AirTorres Sports Podcast. Great show today. I know I say every show is great, but this one is huge, mega show today as we're kind of right here on the border of college football and college basketball, so here's a quick rundown of what's going to happen, and then we will get into the topics of the day. We will start with college football. Week 10 is in the books. Right before I recorded, Willie Taggart was fired at Florida State, and so that is the big news of the day. I'm sure many of you are wondering, what do I think of Willie Taggart? Is it possible uh, that Mark Stoops at Kentucky could be the leading candidate? What about friend of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, Bob Stoops? Is he a, a chance to be the next head coach of Florida State? So we'll get into that. Uh, we'll get into the weekend. I'll probably jump. Two, three topics really quick because I want to get into college basketball. By the time you guys listen to this on Monday, we will be one day away from the start of the season, Champions Classic, New York City, one versus two, Michigan State versus Kentucky, three versus four, Kansas versus Duke, and I bring on my buddy Rob Douster, NBC Sports to break it all down, to talk about the big games, and then on the back end, I will again be solo, I will give you my preseason college basketball final four national championship and player of the year picks three of the final four picks I'm just going to tell you you probably guess right now uh, they are among the teams that are in the preseason top five I have another one that's a little bit off the radar but never forget I'm the guy that picked Auburn to make the final four last year the year before I had Xavier in the final four they did not make it but they ended up as a number one seed so I have a pretty good track record at this point of finding a team in the preseason that's a little bit undervalued that is going to be really good come March. Before we get into everything, I want to remind everybody, please subscribe to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. You can do it on iTunes. You can do it on Podcast Addict. If you have an Android, Podcast Addict is the way to go. You can do it on Podbean. You do it on TuneIn Radio, Spotify. Anywhere you listen to podcasts, you can get this show. Also, make sure to rate and review the show Give us a quick five stars if you want to give a nice review, say something nice, what you like about me, why you love the show, why you hate the show, why you hate me, whatever you want. Just give me a quick five stars, iTunes, wherever you do it, give me a quick five stars, rating and review. Also, you can follow on Instagram, Aaron underscore Torres underscore sports underscore podcast on Instagram. And finally, if you have any questions, Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. One other little kind of quick announcement. I did want to ask this. I wanted to know if any of the listeners of this show plan on being in Las Vegas for the CBS Sports Classic December 21st. Not sure if any of you guys are going. For people who don't know, it's Kentucky, Ohio State. It's UCLA, North Carolina. Got a lot of Kentucky fans that listen to the show, a lot of North Carolina fans, and so I figured... It might be fun to do a little something. So if you're planning on being there, let me know. I'm just trying to get a feel for if anybody from the show will actually be there. If you would want to get together, maybe do a live show, something like that, email me, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions. Just let me know if you're planning on going and if you are, when you're getting into town, and if you think that'd be something that you're interested in. Uh, again, Aaron Torres podcast questions at gmail.com. We'd just love to know if, if people are actually going to be there, and if so, what their plans are. I know it's a tough time of year. Right around the Christmas holiday, and it might not be possible. So keep me posted, Aaron Torres, podcast questions at gmail.com. All right, let's get right into today's show. And I'm going to kind of go quick because I have a 40 minute interview with Rob Dowster coming up. But the story of the day, the story of the weekend in college football didn't happen on the field, although I guess technically it did, because Florida State got smoked by Miami. Florida State on Sunday afternoon. Fired Willie Taggart, the head coach at Florida State. He was hired just a year and a half ago, two years ago. And he's out after, what, uh, 19 games? 21 games. 21 games, excuse me. He finishes 9-12 overall. He was 4-5 this year. He went 5-7 and last year. Last year was the first time since the early 1980s that Florida State has had not made a bowl game. He promised change this year. It didn't come uh, and I'll tell you this. i'll just I'll just get right into it. This is one where I really don't have like a super strong opinion on. On the one hand, I am somebody that believes, you know, I, i'm I've been a college football fan my entire life, and I remember back in the day, it used to be you got to give a guy four years, right? You got to give a guy time to bring in a full cycle of recruits, give him time to to put in his system to do this, to do that, to do whatever. I would also say, Uh, That has changed over the years. More and more guys are out after three years. I can't say that I ever remember a guy being gone after a year and a half before even two complete years unless there was some kind of scandal, NCAA problem, whatever. I can never remember a coach leaving this early into his tenure, and Florida State's basically going to pay for it. They're going to pay almost $20 million in buyout money to get rid of Willie Taggart to leave as Florida State's head coach. So obviously, look, nobody's feeling that bad for Willie Taggart, and I'd say two things in defense of those who think that he should be gone. Again, I personally think it's a little bit early, but two things. One, he wasn't that successful, and two... Um, as I myself have pointed out, right? Like, like, So I spent all weekend on social media. I was watching the games, preparing for my radio show on Saturday night, preparing for this podcast. And I was very critical of Scott Frost in Nebraska. And I was very critical of Chad Morris at Arkansas. Both of those guys are second-year head coaches. And the reason I was critical was because I do believe that when you're the head coach of a major college football program, Year 1 is just a total wash, right? Like anything can happen in year 1. Nick Saban lost to Louisiana Monroe in year 1. Um Urban Meyer didn't have a ton of success at 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 Florida in year 1. So anything can happen in year 1. Ed Orgeron was good, but he has taken the program to another level in year 2 and year 3. So I bring that up because by year 2, you should by this point in the season. We are now 10 weeks into the season. Most teams have played 9 games. You should be showing signs of improvement. And so I was really critical of Scott Frost over the weekend. I was really critical of Chad Morris over the weekend because, frankly, they're not showing any signs of improvement. And I think you could absolutely make the same case for Willie Taggart. Willie Taggart, like I said, he's 4-5. and five. Now, I do think with three games left, he would have done enough to get to a bowl game. They play Boston College this weekend. They play an FCS school. Then they play Florida. Probably would have lost to Florida, but would win two games to get to 6-6. Six and six. But when I look at the totality of things... The bottom line is that they are a very undisciplined, unorganized team that was in the top five nationally in penalties. They were struggling to move the ball. The offense really didn't get that much better, even though they spent a ton of money on their offensive coordinator in the offseason. And so I also see the argument that I myself have made, which is by the middle of year two, you should be showing signs of progress. And by the way, say what you want about Jeremy Pruitt at Tennessee. That guy's won three out of his last four games. The only loss was at Alabama. That guy's showing signs of progress. Chip Kelly at UCLA has won three straight games. That guy is showing signs of progress. And so if a Florida State fan is listening to this show and they want to be critical of me because I'm saying I wouldn't have fired him in year two, um, okay, like I get it. Because you do have to show signs of progress and it's very clear that Florida State wasn't. And apparently they had no reason to think it was going to get better. And so they let Willie Taggart go and they're going to pay him a lot of money. Now, what I do think is interesting, I have found in my years of covering this stuff, as a general rule, when a head coach is fired this early, this unprecedented, again, we don't have coaches fired in the middle of their second year when there is no major academic, or major NCA problems or anything like that. So it does make me wonder is there something going on behind the scenes at Florida State more than that the Boosters want Willie Taggart out? They got Willie Taggart out. Do they already have potentially somebody else lined up? Now, the it's interesting because the Florida State Athletic Director already came out and said, Urban Meyer's not a candidate here. We're not pursuing him. Now, granted, he also said we're, we're supporting Willie Taggart. But I will say one name did come to mind to me when all this happened. Now, a lot of people publicly have linked Mark Stoops to this job. And I'll get to Mark Stoops in a second. I was thinking about friend of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, Bob Stoops, when I heard that this job opened. And let me explain why. For those of you guys who listen to every single episode, Bob Stoops came on about a month ago. He was promoting his book. I'll be honest, I don't think he liked me. I don't know why. I mean, come on, I'm awesome, right? Like, I don't know who wouldn't like AT. But I don't think he really liked me. But towards the end of the interview, I did ask him a question because he's coaching in the new XFL this spring. And I said to him, like, point blank, like, is this a potential opportunity for you to get back into coaching and maybe back into the college game? And I think he was a little confused. And I think he was, he thought that I was saying that he was using the XFL to kind of boost him up so that he could get a college job again, which I wasn't. But the point being is that when I did ask him about a college job, he wasn't really saying no to what I was asking. And I think it's interesting because. In life, what I'll tell you that I've found is this. So much of these coaching moves are about timing, right? Um, for a young coach, sometimes when you're on your way up, do you feel like you've plateaued? Do you feel like you've done enough? Uh, for an older coach, sometimes it's as simple as you're happy where you're at. Your family's happy where you're at. You don't want to pull your kids out of school. You don't want to start over. You got a good thing going, which we'll get into Mark Stoops for a second. Bob Stoops is at a really interesting kind of point and crossroads in his life, for lack of a better term, in that he's been out of coaching for now, I believe this is his fourth season, third or fourth, whatever it is, and what's interesting about it is his kids are now out of the house, and so he, when he retired, it was because he wanted to spend more time with his family, and not to get too like dark here, but it's in his books, I'll just say it, is that He did say, like, you know, his father, kind of for lack of a better term, I'm just going to say it, literally died on the sidelines. He had a heart attack while he was coaching a game. And Bob Stoops in his book explained, like, I didn't want that to be me. But he's been out three years now. His kids are out of the house. And he's even said, like, there's only so much golf that you can play. And so I'm starting to wonder is this the kind of thing where maybe Florida State behind the scenes kind of heard, like, hey, Bob Stoops might be, if this thing opens up, Bob Stoops might be interested. On the flip side, Florida State may be thinking, we got to get a jump on this because there are two championship Hall of Fame coaches, Bob Stoops and Urban Meyer, available, and if we wait until USC fires their coach, which we're going to get into in a minute, um, if we wait until some of these other moves are made, these guys might not be available. So to me, I just think based on what I had heard from Bob Stoops when he was on the show, I don't claim to have any insight beyond his conversation and reading his book and talking to people that know him, but I think Bob Stoops could be a real candidate for this job. Now, what I would say, I don't buy necessarily that Mark Stoops is a candidate for this job, and Mark Stoops is the first name that has kind of come up outside of Bob Stoops and Urban Meyer. Because Mark Stoops obviously has a really long track record. One, in Southern Florida, he coached at both Miami and Florida State, uh, but then specifically with Florida State. For people who don't know, and I'm guessing most everybody listening to this podcast would know, but prior to coming to Kentucky as the head coach, he was the defensive coordinator at Florida State under Jimbo Fisher. And so when I look at it in the big picture, I think it's very logical to put Mark Stoops in the category of a candidate. I'm not saying he's not. I'm not claiming that I know him well enough to know if he would be interested in leaving. I'll leave that to the the KSR guys and Nick Roush and Jack Pilgrim. Those are my guys that cover Kentucky football. They might have a better answer than I would. But what I would tell you is this. If I was Mark Stoops, I'd be very careful. And this is why I don't think that, I don't know that he would want to go right now. Because first of all, from... First of all, from Florida State's perspective, they're gonna pay Willie Taggart $20 million. Mark Stoops has close to a $2 million buyout, and he already makes almost $5 million a year. So you're now talking about $20 million for the last coach, $2 million just to get Mark Stoops to campus, then you gotta pay him at least as good money as Kentucky's paying him, if not better. And then the question becomes: like, you know, now we're talking about like like 30 million just next year to get Mark Stoops. not And he's going to want a six or seven year contract because he's leaving a great deal at Kentucky. But I look at it from Mark Stoops' perspective and I wonder, do you really want to leave Kentucky right now? Now, I'm not saying that he's going to end his career there. And it was one thing. Um, I thought it was really interesting that um, over the course of Uh, The interview with Bob Stoops, he kind of talked about the process of, did he, you know, I asked Bob Stoops, like, what advice would you have for Mark as you kind of continue your career, as he continues his career, and Bob Stoops kind of said, like, I would never tell him what to do, but if you're happy, don't mess with happiness, and so I bring that up because Mark Stoops has a pretty good thing going at Kentucky right now, the program's winning well, he's been there, I think, seven years, and it's his baby it's his est- he's established it and so to give that all up and again maybe he just feels like it's time to move on i really don't know but to give all that up when you're making 5 million a year to go to florida state and here's the part that matters to go to florida state where they just fired the previous coach didn't even give him 2 years so now you're talking about you go to florida state what if that place is a bigger mess than you realize What if you get to Florida State and you realize it's going to take three, four, five years to really turn this thing around? And they just fired the last guy after a year and a half. And so to me, that's the big thing with Mark Stoops. Again, I'm not claiming to know whether he wants that job or whether he considers himself a candidate or whether he's going to take a call or whatever. What I would tell you is this. I know that in the coaching profession, a lot of jobs that we as fans think are these incredible jobs that everybody wants... Well, Florida State's in a little bit of a cluster right now. Keep in mind, they missed a bowl game last year. People forget that the year Jimbo Fisher left, they went 6-6. Six and six. They had to reschedule a game just to get to 6-6 six and six to go to a bowl game. So it's not as though they were at that elite level even when Jimbo Fisher was there towards the end. And so you add that in with the fact that they just fired a coach after a year and a half, that they're a total mess, that they're not getting better. I'm just saying, I don't know if I'm Mark Stoops that I want to give up Everything that I've built at Kentucky to go to Florida State, where they just fired the guy after a year and a half. So it's something to keep an eye on. It's obviously the biggest coaching job available. I do think USC is going to be available. I'm going to talk about that at the end of this segment. Before I do, I just want to talk about a couple of the quick games. I don't think there was kind of a ton to take away in the big picture from this weekend. Obviously, look, when the number one, number two, number three team in the country are all sitting out, which was Alabama, LSU, and Ohio State all had a bye. Oklahoma had a bye. Penn State had a bye. Like, there's not going to be a lot to talk about. By the way, Clemson played Wofford. They played an FCS team, so it's not like Clemson played a big game. So, I guess we'll just talk about the big game of the day. It was Florida-Georgia. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. I'll spend a couple minutes here, but as I sit back and look at that game, I don't really think there's all that much to take out of it. Um, I told you on last Thursday's show that I thought um, Florida, or excuse me, that Georgia was going to win. I use the same stat that I'm going to use right now. Kirby Smart got to Alabama in 2007. He became the Alabama coordinator, defensive coordinator in 2008. At the time, Dan Mullen was Florida's offensive coordinator, and then he went to Mississippi State as the head coach. And since then, those two guys, Kirby Smart's defense and Dan Mullen's offense, have basically gone together head-to-head every year since 2008. Dan Mullen won in 2008 when he had Tim Tebow, Percy Harvin, Aaron Hernandez, a couple other guys. Since then, they have been head-to-head 10 times, and including Saturday's win, Kirby Smart is now 10-0 heads up. Kirby Smart's defense, 10-0 heads up, straight up, against Dan Mullen's offense. Now look, I get it. You can argue there was a huge talent gap when Kirby Smart was at Alabama and Dan Mullen was at Mississippi State. I'm not going to argue that. But Dan Mullen's a really good coach. Dan Mullen beat a lot of really good coaches in his time. He beat Les Miles. Uh, I believe he beat Mark Richt. He beat a lot of really good coaches in the SEC, and he's never figured out Kirby Smart. I think it was a testament yesterday to the fact that on Saturday, I should say, yesterday by the time you guys listen will be Sunday, so Saturday, whatever. I think it was a testament to Georgia one, that they are still talented, right? Like, I've been critical of Kirby Smart, and I think it's more that I just didn't like the fact that he was trying to claim that his team shouldn't be in the playoff because they lost a close game to Alabama. Um, But he's still a great coach, and he's still a great defensive mind. I also think it's a testament to the fact that Florida, Dan Mullen is a really good coach that's getting a lot out of a team that doesn't have very much right now. And the stat that stood out I'm looking at it right now. Florida ended up with 278 yards of total offense. You know how many rushing yards that Florida had on Saturday against Georgia? 21 yards rushing. Total. On 19 carries, they averaged 1.1 yards per carry. And I thought it was really interesting. Early in the game, Dan Mullen had a fourth down situation. Florida had a fourth down situation. And Kyle Trask dropped back as a quarterback and tried to throw the ball. And that said to me right there, Dan Mellon doesn't think his defense, his offensive line can block the guys in front of him. And it never really got better. Final score was 24-17. Georgia now in, in pole position to make it back to the SEC championship game. Potentially Bama-Georgia Part 3 or Georgia-LSU Part 1, depending on what happens with LSU and Bama this weekend. By the way, I should mention really quick, uh, Wednesday. so we're going to do the next episode early this week. I'm going to record Tuesday night after the Champions Classic, but also I will give you a preview of Alabama LSU. And speaking of Alabama, Alabama basketball coach Nate Oates will join me on the next episode, so keep an eye out for that. But I bring it up because Georgia is now headed to the SEC Championship game, and by the end of this weekend, we should have a pretty good idea of who they play. The winner of that game, it would basically be impossible for the winner of that game to not advance to the SEC Championship game. But I'll tell you this, I still don't buy that Georgia's on the same level as Bama and LSU. If you looked at Georgia, they were good yesterday, they were good on Saturday, they were good against Florida, but are they going to be able to score enough to keep up with two on Bama or Joe Burrow and LSU? We'll find out. Good win for Georgia. Give credit to Kirby Smart where he's due. I don't buy that they're at Bama-LSU level yet, but guess what? There's still a couple more games between when Georgia is going to play in the SEC championship game and maybe they really will get better. We'll find out in the coming weeks, but credit to Georgia, not really surprised by the result. They will now almost certainly be headed to the SEC Championship game where they will play either Bama or LSU. All right, couple other really quick notes, then we're gonna to get to Rob Dowster. First one, I told you about this last Thursday and it applied 100%. I think you can make a legitimate case that Saturday was maybe... The best day for Pac-12 football, maybe since Oregon beat Florida State in the first college football playoff in 2014. That was the year they had Marcus Mariota. That was the year he won the Heisman. It's been a bad couple of years for 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 Pac-12 football, right? It's been the type of situation where every time something could go wrong, somebody something does. They haven't really had a national championship contender since Marcus Mariota left Oregon. They've only made the playoff once. That was a year Washington got in and lost to Alabama. But I bring all that up because Saturday was a great day for the Pac-12. And I know you're probably thinking, why, is, why are you talking Pac-12, AT? But the reason is, very pretty simply, is because of the fact that... Um, Because of the fact that the the Pac 12 now is in potentially a position to steal a playoff burst. So, to backtrack, I told you this on Thursday, but it was basically a mega day for the conference because Utah entered the day at 7 1, and they were traveling to Washington, and Oregon entered the day 7 1, and they traveled to USC. And if both teams won, both teams have a very manageable schedule. That would very likely put them in position to both be 11-1, win their division, and meet in the Pac-12 championship game. They don't play during the regular season, so this would be the only meeting it would be for the Pac-12 championship, and both teams won on Saturday. You saw the games, you don't need me to recap them, but Utah rallied, they were down 21-13, to 13. Uh, they scored 20 straight points. It started with a pick six. I was actually texting my buddy. Uh, you know, Utah's dreams are over. I picked Utah in the preseason to make the college football playoff, so it seemed like my Utah dreams were over. Instead, they come back. They win. Oregon dominates USC on Saturday night. Scored 56 points after the first quarter. Offense or defensive touchdown, special teams touchdown shows you just how talented that group is. But now you got both teams that are eight and one. And you look at the rest of their schedules, and it's actually very manageable. And so if both teams can, neither team plays a ranked team the rest of the year. Um, Oregon does play at Arizona State, who's been pretty good this year under Herm Edwards. But the bottom line is, if both of those teams get to the Pac-12 championship at 11-1, and, and I talked about this last week, so I'm not going to spend too much time. If they get to the Pac-12 championship at 11-1, and one, the winner of that game, whoever it is, Is going to have a very, very, very strong resume. And like we've already, we're in a world where we've already put Ohio State in the college football playoff and we've already put uh, the winner of Bama LSU in the college football playoff and Clemson in the college football playoff. And everyone just assumes the loser of Bama LSU is going to be in the college football playoff. I'll tell you this Oregon or Utah is going to have a very strong resume relative to whoever they're competing with for a spot. Now, It'll be interesting, right? I'm not going to start doing resumes, and I think I did this last episode and it probably got a little confusing, but I'll just say this. You can mark it down. If Utah and Oregon both finish 11-1, both go to the Pac-12 championship game, I think the winner is going to have a, a better resume than any Big 12 champ, whether it's Oklahoma or Baylor. The ACC, if Clemson if Clemson loses a game, I don't know how they would get in there. There's going to be so many teams with better resumes than them. They might even have a better resume than the loser of Bama LSU, specifically if it's Bama. Now it gets a little complicated because Oregon lost to Auburn, Bama would probably have to beat Auburn, so I'm not going to get into it. But the point is, it was a great day for the Pac-12, and in a year where Oregon lost on opening night, we thought that the Pac-12's best shot at the playoff was completely gone. The Pac-12 has a great night, both their their, their two best teams have rallied Their two best teams are now in position to finish the regular season 11-1, potentially make the playoff. We'll just follow that as the the rest of the fall goes on. I should mention, by the way, the college football playoffs will release their first top four on Tuesday between the two games at the Champions Classic. So we get Duke-Kansas, and then when that goes final, um, we will have the college football playoff committee release their top four, and then will have Kentucky, Michigan State. And so why do I bring that up? I'll just give you who I, this is who I think the committee will put as their top four. I think it'll be Ohio State number one. I think it'll be LSU number two. I think it'll be Bama number three. And I do think it'll be Penn State number four. And I think the reason is very simple. They'll put Clemson at number five, knowing that when Penn State and Ohio State play, and when LSU and Bama play, two of those teams are going to lose and they can eventually move Clemson up and in. But right now Clemson doesn't have a resume that's better than Penn State and it certainly doesn't have a resume that's better than LSU, Ohio State and they're not better than Bama. So I think that's going to be the top four, that's going to be the top 5 and again look out for Clemson to eventually move up, but I just think it was a great day for the Pac-12 overall which of course now has two teams that could potentially finish 11 and 1 and find themselves in the college football playoff picture if they can both win out and meet in the Pac-12 championship game. All right, last little thing. I don't want to spend a ton of time on it because Rob is coming up and I do have my final four national championship picks on the back end. But I think Saturday was a really weird deal. We spent the, we opened the show talking Willie Taggart. We're going to close this segment talking about another coaching inevitability, which is Clay Helton. His, he's done at USC. And it was kind of crazy because over the course of like 24 hours... Everything conspired against the guy. And I actually think he's been pretty good this year. They came into last night at 5-3 and three overall. A couple really close losses to at Notre Dame and at Washington. They played them tough, but they had too many injuries. And coming into that game, USC was about a touchdown underdog. But two things happened that pretty much sealed Clay Helton's fate. On Friday, USC hired their new athletic director. So we all thought the one saving grace might be that USC wouldn't have, we, I, I don't I don't mean to say it's a, it's a saving grace if you're a USC fan, but if you're a Pac-12 or if you're a just a fan of, of whatever or if you're Clay Helton, the saving grace might have been that maybe USC doesn't get an AD in place in time to make the coaching hire in December and that buys you some time, but the reality is the AD was hired on Friday. He's coming from Cincinnati, so the Cincinnati AD is now going to be the head of the AD at USC. And then very simply, USC got smoked by Oregon. And USC got smoked by Oregon on a national stage where everybody saw it. And most importantly, it was at home where their own fans saw it. And their own fans saw what a a playoff contender, national championship contender maybe in Oregon looks like. And they saw how far their program is from being on that level. And so I think it's an inevitability. I don't know when it happens, I actually, to be honest, kind of thought it might happen on um, on Sunday, but I guess when you don't have an AD in place, because the new AD hasn't technically been hired yet, uh, hasn't technically taken office yet, he's been hired. But I guess when, when that happens, you really don't have a choice. I do think it's going to be inevitable, though. I do think it's coming very soon, though, and I'll tell you why. I heard a little nugget, which I thought was interesting. USC's end-of-season banquet, right? All these teams have end-of-season banquet, they hand out awards, this and that. Usually it's in late December, early January. You know, once you get past the season, maybe even after the bowl game, USC's banquet is the day after their final game of the regular season, which is UCLA, November 23rd. So November 24th or 5th is when the USC football banquet is, which means to me, they're getting ready to make a move that night, say thank you to Clay Helton, and then push him out the door. So I think that this weekend, That was it for Clay Helton, and I think he's done well, and when he ends up getting fired, I can talk about it more. I have a little bit more insight than I'm going to share right now, Um, but it is time, and when the new AD is now in place and the fact that, oh, by the way, let's not forget, you got smoked at home by a playoff contender. Your fans now know what a playoff contender looks like and how far away you are. That is a bad sign. All right, so that is all for this segment um, I will be joined momentarily by Rob Dowster, but again, that was the college football stuff. Stick around after Rob. I know it's a little bit of a longer show today. Stick around after Rob because I will give you my college basketball Final Four National Championship picks. So that is all for this segment. I will be back after Rob Dowster, so stay tuned, but first, here is my main man. He's been on the show many times, NBC Sports, Rob Dowster. All right, and joining me on the phone now to preview the Champions Classic, which is now literally hours away, the college basketball season, which is literally hours away. Uh, I've known him a long time, good friend, NBC Sports College Hoops insider, host of the NBC Sports College Basketball podcast, Rob Douster. What's up, buddy? How you doing?
0: I'm good, man. I'm good, Aaron. I am ready to talk about basketball games. We were just talking about this off air a little bit, and I'm I'm so done talking about like name image likeness stuff, about talking off season stuff, about talking who I think is going to be good and who I don't think is going to be good. I don't, I want to see who actually is good. So I'm I'm so fired up to talk about actual games with you. Like you have no idea how excited I am right now.
2: Dude, I'm right there with you. Obviously, the name image likeness stuff is kind of taken over the sport and uh, we've all shared our thoughts we've also all just shared our thoughts on college hoops in general like I'm with you I'm tired of the yeah like I think Seton Hall could take down Villanova in the Big East this it's like yeah who cares we all think that let's just move on Uh, All right. So season now, like I said, hours away. Just really quickly, I'm going to get to the Champions Classic in a minute, but broad 30,000 foot view, like like what stands out to you coming into this year? I know that's a super broad question to start, but like, what are the couple, two, three things that you're just kind of looking forward to seeing in general?
0: So the things that really just kind of stand out are just how many good guards there are in college yeah. basketball this season. Like it, I did the top 100 player list for us on, I guess it was Thursday and like 10 of the top 17 guys on our top 100 players list are guards. And whether it's miles Powell or Marcus Howard, or Cassius Winston or Cole Anthony, Anthony Edwards um, you know, there's just so many really, really, really good guards. And I kind of love that because I think college basketball is at its best when you have really good guard play. And, uh, you know, this is a whole different conversation that is a different uh, wormhole. I don't know if we want to go down, but when you look at the NBA, uh, part of the reason it's as good as it is is because every team has a legitimately like great point guard. Someone's going to be like a top 30, top 40, top 50 point guard in the entire world on the planet. And in college basketball, you don't always get that. So you don't always get offenses getting run smoothly. And when when the shot clock kind of gets to the end, uh, you don't always end up getting a good shot. So I think that's kind of what uglies up college basketball to a point. And I think this year, what I'm excited about is a lot of good teams have really good point guards. And I think that that kind of makes it – it makes the sport more watchable. Um, It makes it so that it's a little less ugly. And I think it's – at the end of the day, I think it just helps scoring and and everything. And everybody loves points. So – Uh, I, I, to me, that's one of the things that kind of stood out. I was, I was doing all of this preview stuff.
2: Yeah, it was crazy. I don't know if I've ever kind of said this publicly, but I've kind of thought it privately. Uh, you Uh mentioned, well, there we go. No, no, no. It's nothing (laughs) bad. It's actually nothing bad. It's just, it's just, you know, listen, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I, I think weird things at weird times, uh, you know, whatever, But listen, we're spending so much time on one end of the spectrum with Cassius Winston at Michigan State, senior, we all know him, Marcus Howard, Miles Powell, and of course we always talk about freshmen. It's a a big part of covering the sport. Anthony Edwards, Cole Anthony, like you mentioned. This to me, and this is the part that I don't think I've ever said publicly, the year of the sophomore guard. I mean, I would, and I haven't actually taken the time to do this, I would love to know the year that Duke Kentucky and Kansas, Trey Jones, Ashton Hagens, and Devon Dotson have all had returning point guards. The players that I just mentioned, and like you said, at a uh, at schools as high profile as that, where we're watching them more, we're consuming them more. We should, in theory get a better level of play from the beginning because of the fact that we have guys that have at the very least been there and done it. And let's be honest, all of them have NBA potential. It's not as though they're just, you know, the three-star guy that's developed or, you know, getting thrown into a role because another guy left early. Like, I think all three of those guys could have conceivably left and at the very least been playing in the G League this year fighting for an NBA roster spot. So that was one thing that kind of jumped out to me. Is like, man, like, Trey Jones, Ashton Hagen's, Devon Dotson, individually they have things they got to get better at. But, like, as a collective group, I'm just like, man, those three schools to have those three guys, that's like a really big thing coming into this year.
0: Yeah, it's not often that you end up getting – the, the programs that churn out one and done talent more than anybody else, all having uh, second year players at the point guard spot. And so that's definitely big and it's a good point. And it's something I guess I, I knew it, but I never really consciously thought yeah. about it. It never struck me that way. So um, and, and the good thing is like that. Those are uh, three of the four teams that we're going to get the Champions Classic and uh, throw in Michigan State, who probably has the best player and best point guard in the country and Cassius Winston. And there's a lot of good guard play that we're going to end up seeing in New York on uh tomorrow night
2: 100 percent uh all right let's get into it so uh the the first game i believe technically on the schedule is duke kansas we'll get to that in a minute i do want to start with michigan state and kentucky so um listen kentucky is the most covered program in college basketball we all know that I'm more kind of interested in Michigan State. And tell me if I'm being like a completely overreactionary guy here because like you said, when we haven't had a game in five months, we overreact to everything. But we all understand why Michigan State is number one in the preseason. They should be number one in the preseason. But when I look at what's happened this preseason... One, Josh Langford isn't healthy, which, okay, whatever. He's a good player, but they obviously made the Final Four without him last year. But now we have injuries to Kyle Aarons, who's like potentially going to miss this game with, a, with a, a sprained ankle as we record here. Uh, it could change by tip-off. Who knows? Thomas Kithier, who's a big guy that plays real minutes for them or is expected to with the departure of some of the guys that they had, uh, broke his nose at practice the other day. Add in the fact that, oh, by the way, They got smoked by Gonzaga in a preseason closed door scrimmage, and I know these things generally don't matter. But also, like I was told by people in the gym, Michigan State was trying to win that game. It wasn't like, oh, let's get our young guys reps. Let's sit Cassius. Like they were trying to win that game. You take in the uh, some other stuff. I just like, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, I totally get why Michigan State is number one in the poll. They should be number one in the preseason, but like. You know, maybe a month ago, six weeks ago, two months ago, we were like, "This is definitive. I have no doubt." And now I'm looking at them like, "Man, they got some real question marks at least to start the year uh, before they get their guys healthy and back."
0: Yeah, and I guess they do. I think there's also the the point that I would make is that there's definitely real question marks about this Kentucky team as well. You know, do do they 100%. actually have? Any big guys that are going to be good enough to kind of compete with someone like Xavier Tillman, who I think is um, a little bit underrated nationally in terms of how good he is. Uh, how exactly is Kentucky going to end up playing? You know, are they going to go uh, allow EJ Montgomery to kind of roam around on the perimeter and be that like mismatch guy that he really thrives in? Is, are they going to let him play the five a little bit? Um, are you going to be able to trust Nick, Nick Richards to be a 20 minute per game guy? Like, is Nate Sustina, a guy from Bucknell, going to be good enough to compete? Uh, on the same floor as two of the top three teams in college basketball, wh- which of these guards are going to end up being uh, kind of their go-to guys. So I think there's plenty of question marks about this Kentucky team as well. And um, the the one thing that I'm kind of curious with, especially with Kentucky is I think when they're going to be at their best this year is when they can kind of just get out and run the floor. Sure. You know, I don't know what they necessarily have the pieces to be a great half-court offense. Like, I I don't know if you look at anybody on that team and say, okay, they're going to be a great kind of one-on-one scorer. They're going to be a guy that when we get to the end of the shot clock can break somebody down. Uh, They don't really have that De'Aaron Fox. They don't have someone like a Malik Monk. They don't have uh, anybody at that level. I think when they're going to be at their best this year, it's going to be kind of like a, you know, get out and pressure. Get out and try to force turnovers. Get get out and transition. Because I think they actually do have a lot of guys – that are fast, that are going to be able to um, kind of score in the break, that are going to be great when they kind of get in transition and kind of get a lane to get their momentum going. Someone like a Khalil Whitney, you know, someone like a Tyrese Maxey, even an Ashton Hagens, I think is at his best in the open floor. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see how that all kind of plays out. Um, I, I think that Kentucky is going to get off to a little bit of a slow start again personally, kind of the same way that they did last year. But, I mean, there's too much talent for them not to end up being really, really good. But I do think that this—they—they they are going to end up being—they're uh, uh, not going to look in November. They're not going to look like what they're, they will be in March. The same way that it kind of played out last season. You know, like they took their lumps early, uh, and then PJ Washington kind of put it all together, and um, and Tyler Hero kind of figured out exactly what his role was, started gaining a little bit of confidence, and then by the time the NCAA tournament rolled around, they were what like a top. 18, top 16 in college basketball. Yeah,
2: yeah and it was crazy, too, because um, if you remember, and I was talking to somebody about this the other day, but, like, they were probably the second or third best team in the country about mid-February, and then Reed Travis gets hurt, and then right as he gets healthy, P.J. Washington gets hurt, and they never really had the full complement of guys uh, for the probably the last probably six weeks, maybe not six weeks, maybe about four or five weeks of the season. I guess my point with Michigan State, we'll get back to Kentucky in a minute, is, is it that Kentucky doesn't have problems, that Duke doesn't have problems, that Seton Hall doesn't have problems, that uh, UCLA doesn't have problems? Everybody has problems at this time of year, but I just feel like, and maybe you just feel completely differently and that's perfectly fine, I just feel like A month ago, maybe, maybe six weeks ago, like it was so consensus that Michigan State is ahead of the pack. They got vets. They got, you know, maybe a guy, Aaron Henry, who's a potential NBA kind of caliber player on the wing. They'll get back Josh Langford. I guess the only point I'm trying to make is you look at Michigan State, how universal it was that, like, yeah, they're for sure the best team. And now I look at them and I say, they open against Kentucky, they play at Seton Hall the second week of the season, they play in Maui where they could play Kansas, they play Duke in the ACC Big Ten Challenge, I just think that, like, I thought that they would just be this team that just stacks up wins, you know, I'm not saying they would would run that undefeated, but now I just feel like I don't feel like they're that much better at this point of the year, of the calendar year, ready to go into the season than say a Seton Hall, than say a Kentucky, than say uh, a Kansas, who they're going to potentially meet in the Mau- Maui Invitational.
0: Yeah, I mean they're definitely banged up, um, and that certainly doesn't help. the The only thing that I would say is that I think Cassius Winston erases a lot of yeah, mistakes. You know, when you when you have a guy that is as good as him, that is as good as setting up teammates as he is, uh, I think that that changes some things. And I, I think you made this point earlier. Um, they still made the – they won – Josh Lankford missed uh, all but 13 games last season, which means he didn't play uh, when they when they made their run to the Big Ten regular season title. He didn't play when they made their run to the Big, e, uh, the Big Ten tournament title. And he didn't play when they made it to the Final Four. So I'm not necessarily that worried about him not being there uh, because they've proven that they can be one of the best teams in the country without him. Um, and then I, – I mean – Aaron Henry gets another year under his belt. Gabe Brown's got another year under his belt. But I think Marcus Bingham is a guy that might have the highest ceiling of anybody in that sophomore class. Uh, Rocket Watts is a, a, an interesting freshman they got coming in. So I think that there is a little bit more um, – there's, there's more uh, on the table there. But you know this idea that they are this veteran team that has so much experience, it's not really – not necessarily the case. You know? <laughs> If you kind of look at it, if Kyle Aarons doesn't end up being able to play – then they only have two guys that aren't a freshman or a sophomore that are going to be playing on that uh, in the opening night. So um, the X factor could be, I, I believe Joey Hauser is still waiting to hear whether or not he gets a waiver, and I think he'd be just imagining him uh, running kind of ball screens, spacing the floor for Cassius Winston is uh, that that'd be that'd be a very nice little addition that Michigan State could add.
2: These waivers are phenomenal. I would love to know what his argument for his waiver is. Like for people and, and this has actually been asked of me a lot this offseason is there's all kinds of guys waiting for waivers, but for the most part, like either the, the previous school has to sign off, there has to be some real reason in terms of why you moved, whatever, um, or you just got run off where the coach didn't want you anymore. I would love to know which one is it, Joey Hauser that ended up in Michigan State? I yep, say, Joey. I, I would love to know what his argument would be. Like, is it you know was it was it emotional abuse from playing with Marcus Howard? Like, what was it that is a legitimate reason that you should be allowed to play rather than sitting out? I know you don't have the answer, but I'm just speaking out loud here. So,
0: I, I, I'll I, I've I've heard something about that. I'll tell you off air. I don't know if I could say it publicly.
2: Yeah, listen, I'll, I'll I, I you do <laughs> I mean Marcus Howard takes a lot of shots, but he made a lot of them. So. Uh, I, I don't know. We we could talk about that off air, but, uh, all right. So Kentucky real quick, I think you already mentioned it. I'll say this. So I know you and I have been kind of talking in the, in the moment, but I will just tune in the listeners here is that we are actually recording on Friday before Kentucky plays its second exhibition game. But I will say The first exhibition game was weirdly won, and I went back and watched. It was on uh, Sunday during NFL, so I didn't get to catch it in person. But um, it was weirdly won where they won convincingly. But I think the point that you brought up was, I guess... P.J. Washington maybe spoiled it for everybody, right? Like, we have this in college basketball sometimes. Zion is so good that we just expect there to be another Zion, and it's like, no, there's not going to be another Zion in college basketball this year. And I think because P.J. Washington was so good by the end of last year, I just assumed that Ashton Hagens and E.J. Montgomery would make these monumental leaps between year one and year two. I watched them in the first exhibition. The second exhibition is as we're recording here on Friday afternoon – um, and we're going to find out. Like maybe it was just a bad day. Maybe this is all a work in progress. But I did think that was an interesting point. Is that so much of why I liked Kentucky in this preseason was because they have vets, vets by Kentucky standards, sophomores, uh, and a junior, Nick Richards. But I don't know that they're as far far along as I thought they would be at this point. Now that's not to say, as we discussed earlier, that they can't that they can't or won't be there by February and March because listen, nobody would have watched Kentucky on opening night against Duke last year and thought, okay, that team's going to end up in the Final Four, or excuse me, the Elite Eight playing to go to the Final Four. But the point I'm trying to get to on Kentucky is those sophomores don't appear to me to be as far along as I thought. I don't think it affects them in the big picture of a five-month season, but I will say uh, Tuesday night against Michigan State, I do think it could be a little bit of an X factor.
0: Yeah, and and the To add to that point, like the big thing is, um, at the start of the year, PJ Washington was not the guy he was at the end of the year. Like he didn't he didn't make his leap until about January. And like once he figured it out, if you look at what he's doing right now for the Hornets, you know, he's he's one of the uh he he might end up being like the best value that people got out of the draft. He's averaging what, like, fifteen points, eight boards and uh and and I don't know what the exact numbers are, but I'm pretty sure he hasn't missed a three pointer yet this season. (laughs) So um he didn't really make his leap until January. Like they, I remember watching – was, it, uh,
2: they played was it the Seton Hall game? Well, Seton no, I think Hall, he, but Alabama. They played Alabama to open SEC play, and he was just like – He had like three points on 1-8 shooting or something like that, right? Something insane like that. And I remember even – I actually had him on this podcast uh, right before the draft, and he basically said that was like it took a while for me to like – I knew what I was capable of doing, but to kind of one bring that energy every night and then two knowing that my team needed it. So the point that you're trying to get to, which is 100% accurate, is it did take him a while to turn into that All-SEC, All-American and now NBA player that he is. So
0: Yeah, and and one of the things that I had been kind of heard uh, that I had been hearing a little bit Um, coming out of Lexington uh, over the course of like September and October was that EJ just wasn't quite where uh, he needed to be. yet, And that Ashton Hagens was um, not, he didn't make the leap offensively that people thought. And I don't know if anyone actually expected Ashton Hagens to become like some superstar offensive point guard. Like that's just not what his game is. That's not, you know, you don't You don't have him on the floor because you expect him to be Cassius Winston. You have him on the floor because he's a defensive menace that can make things happen in transition, right? So um, I I just – I think your point is accurate. It will be interesting to see how all these guys develop, and and it kind of adds to why I think they might take some lumps early on in the season.
2: All right, very good. Let's move on to the second game in New York on Tuesday. Uh, Correct me if I'm wrong. You have Kansas as your preseason national champion, right?
0: Uh, you did. yes, I do. I, I saw. A yeah, I somewhere. do.
2: You still? Feel yeah, that I think.
0: Way? I I do. Um, mostly because like I just didn't want to take Michigan State <laughs> I felt like a cop out. Uh, sure. But the the thing is like they are they're they're a better veteran. They're a more veteran team than I think people realize. Sure. Um, I think that. The way, like, I, I always have concerns about Yudoka Azebuki, um defensively and, and, you know, what he's going to be at the next level. But in terms of what he can be as a college basketball player, he is just such an absolute monster in the post. And there is nobody better in the sport at finding a way to get his big guys uh, the ball where all they have to do is catch it and turn and dunk it. Like, Bill Self is so good at that. If you go back and look over the years, guys like Thomas Robinson, guys like Cole Aldrich, guys like Jeff Withey, how good were those guys for Kansas and how big of a zero have those guys been when they got to the NBA? Like Bill Self is so good at taking these guys that know how to hold position, that know how to seal position and putting them in actions where it creates all kind of movement on different sides of the ball. And all you got to do is just throw the ball into Yudoka and he turns around and he dunks it. So I think that he's going to be like – a 16 or 17 point per game score i think that osha igbaje is going to take a step forward i think that um devin dotson is going to end up being one of the better point guards in in college basketball and you combine all of that with the fact that um they don't like they have distractions when it comes to um like the the fbi trial and what's going to happen for the longevity of the program and, and bill Self's future but they don't have distractions like that involve players on the floor You know they don't have to worry about whether or not Billy Preston is going to play. They don't have to worry about uh, LeGerald Vick and if he's actually going to be crazy or not this season. They don't have to worry about Silvio De and everything going on with that. Like everything on the floor, like within that locker room, kind of it fits, right? So I'm not as concerned about the off the court stuff this year because it doesn't involve the actual team and the chemistry and what they're going to run and who's going to play and uh, whether or not everyone's going to go out there and play as hard as they can every night. So um, I'm I'm very much in on the idea that Kansas is. I guess undervalued a little bit, you know, out of the, I, I would say that Michigan state, Kentucky and Kansas are the three favorites. And if you had to like make me pick one of them to bet on like a, a future, I think that the obvious pick is, is Kansas at that point. And it's not just because I think they're great, but I think Michigan state right now is like five to one odds to win it. And Kentucky's seven to one odds to win it. And the Kansas like a, is like 10 or 11 to one. So give me the, give me the extra juice and give me Kansas. Cause I don't really see that much of a difference.
2: Yeah, a few weeks ago, and I'm trying to find it now as we speak, and I can't really find it, but um, someone in Vegas, I think it was maybe DraftKings or whatever, came out with over-under win totals for the season. And I thought most of them were pretty on point. I thought Louisville, Michigan State, Kentucky, Duke, all the teams that you would project uh, at the top of college basketball were basically where they should be, and I didn't think there was much value there. And then I think like Kansas was like maybe 24 or something like that. And I bring it up because that was the one that stood out to me uh, as, like, like they're really undervalued coming into the year. And now they play a challenging out-of-conference schedule, but one, I think they're really good. Two, I think the Big is a little down this year. But I'm with you, man, is is I don't think I've put out my official preseason picks every year but uh, for this year, but I will say... Outside of the FBI stuff, and everyone who listens to this show knows I've been critical of Bill Self, but, like, outside of the FBI stuff, the the pieces on the court fit, and I agree with you. They're a veteran team, and Bill Self does – what. it's weird, right? Because, like, he whiffed in, uh you know, some of the recruiting stuff, but, like, he doesn't do well with the Andrew Wiggins uh, – I don't even know who – I mean, Quentin Grimes last year was supposed to be a one-and-done. Like, these guys that come in with this major pedigree – those are the guys that generally don't do well for him, and I do wonder if not having those guys, not having to appease uh, parents and everybody behind the scenes, and we all know what happens when you recruit those caliber of players, but like, I do wonder if that kind of helps them in the big picture of like they just got a lot of dudes, don't get me wrong, everybody wants to play in the NBA, but off the top of my head, like Dotson is probably their best, Best NBA draft prospect, I would think. I know that Abaji has gotten some buzz here of late coming into this season, but it just feels like one of those, like, I don't want to do the cliche, like Virginia, like good college team with maybe no future NBA star – But it does kind of feel like that kind of roster makeup where it's just a bunch of older dudes that have all been there that, like you said, all kind of know their role. I think the more that I look at Kansas, like the more that I actually do think that they're probably, at the very least, kind of, like you said, undervalued relative to the way that we're talking about Michigan State, Louisville, Kentucky this time of year
0: yeah I'm definitely with you on that and I honestly I don't think I love Louisville this year I would not put him in the same conversation Ooh. as the top three teams I think that it's it's why very is, much
2: real quick we get back to Champions Classic why is that because I like Louisville a lot and a lot of people do too
0: I think that they're a little bit more banged up than people sure. realize I don't know if I, I trust their point guard situation I believe uh, Darius Perry was starting for them in their last um, mm. in their exhibition game and uh, I you know I don't want to slander Darius Perry's name but I don't think that I would trust the team that has Darius Perry as their starting point guard. Um, I am uh, a little bit worried about like what's going to happen on the interior. You know, that Steve Enoch and Malik Williams are, are good, but they're like, that's just it. Like they're just kind of fine. And then um, I don't know if uh, like, where's the shooting going to come from? Right? Like, are you, are we going to trust Ryan McMahon to be a guy that plays, uh, what, like 25 minutes a night for him. So I'm a little bit worried about that, but that, like that said, I have them, I think I have him at fifth nationally right now. Uh, I just would not put him in the city. Like, I think there's a very clear cut top three. Like I would not put Duke in that conversation. I would not put North Carolina in that conversation. I wouldn't have Villanova in that conversation. I, I just, I, I think the top three is kind of well in set and then it's everybody else.
2: Very good. Well, that leads very nicely to the last team at the Champions Classic. And I think I'm with you on Duke here. Not not even just in terms of they're not in that same class as, as the other three teams that are going to be there, but that, um, like, I and I've, I've heard you say this, I've, I've seen you write this, like, I, I just don't really like their guys together on one team. And it's not to say they're not talented, it's not to say they don't have guys they're going to play in the NBA, But, like, I was talking to somebody about this last night, and it's, like, you look at their personnel, it's, like, everybody has, like, one individual skill that's really good that doesn't necessarily, like, help out in other areas of the court, right? So, like, Vernon Carey, big, strong kid, but, like, outside of seven feet from the basket, like, I don't really know what he does. Matthew Hurt, like, I have some questions about just if he's physically strong enough to to really excel at the college level while he's in college. Trey Jones, you know, we're going to find out if he can shoot or not, something you've written about extensively this offseason. I I mean, I could go on, but I'll, I'll stop there. But, like, I just look at Duke and it's like, I got a bunch of dudes that do one thing well, but I don't know if all those, like, one individual things translates into a successful team once the games tip off.
0: Yeah, the the big thing for me, and this is the way that I would phrase it, is I don't know how they're going to put a team on the floor that is going to be both good offensively and good defensively. And the way that I think about it is like this. So Trey Jones is a great defender, right? Like he's one of the best on-ball defenders you're going to find in the country. But kind of like Ashton Hagens, he's just not a guy that you necessarily trust on the offensive end. Now, I think Trey Jones does some things better than Ashton Hagens, but both of them – a kind of, I guess, liabilities you can probably say on that end of the floor. Alex O'Connell, he could shoot it, man. He could really, really shoot it. But he, I don't know if he could guard me. Joey Baker, he could shoot it. But I don't know if he could guard you. And the, the, the way that I kind of think about it is like last year when they had all of those shooting issues and they shot like 30% from the floor and there was no way for them to kind of scheme space for R.J. Barrett and Zion Williamson to drive – Alex O'Connell played, like, against Syracuse and, and not really all that much else. Joey Baker played, what, three games and couldn't get off the bench? He might be the best shooter in that program. So that tells me what I need to know about them defensively. Uh, Matthew Hurt is a guy um, who can really, really shoot it, but where are you going to play him? That's the big thing to me, right? So if you have Matthew Hurt and Vernon Carey on the floor together, that's the best offensive team that Duke can play. you got Vernon Carey who just, like, I, I think there's an outside chance he can kind of have, like, he could put up, marvin bagley numbers i w- i don't think he's as good as marvin bagley but i would not be surprised to see him average like 17 and 10 um i think that he like there's just a real chance he could end up being that dominant inside he could really really score on the post he's got like a soft touch um but with Ma- vernie Carey and matthew hurt out there you, like one you're not protecting the rim two how are you guarding ball screens neither of those guys are going to be very good um if you want to guard ball screens you got to get javin deloria on the floor but you can't play matthew hurt at the three because he can't guard on the perimeter Right. Sure. And if you have Javin Delorie out there, then all of your spacing issues come back. Javin is, I think he's like one for 10 in three years from beyond the arc. But he's just not a shooter. So you those spacing spacing issues come up again. Um, so I just I, I don't know how you field a team if you are a coach K that is going to be both really good defensively. And really good on the, the offensive end of the floor because all you guys that can shoot can't guard. All you guys that can guard can't shoot like a Wendell Moore, like a Cassius Stanley, like a Trey Jones. So uh, it, it's – I don't know how he's going to figure it all out. Um, I think there are pieces – I think we're going to see a lot of games where uh, like the lineups are kind of matchup specific. And I think that when you have a Trey Jones, a Matthew Hurt, a Vernon Carey, and guys that are that good, Wendell Moore – uh, you can kind of beat some of the teams that just aren't as talented, but I'm, I, get, I just get worried li- thinking about them going up against someone like a Kansas or going up against someone uh, in the Elite Eight where um, matchups kind of come become more important. So that's kind of where I stand on Duke. I, I don't think I would have them in the top five. I think that they're 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 good and they have a, enough talent that'll keep them relevant, but I just don't see them being a top five basketball team. I would not have them in the same conversation as the uh, the other teams that we've just, uh, that are going to be at the Champions Classic.
2: Is there anybody? And this is something that that happens a lot in college basketball, right? Is like we get towards tournament time and, and we start to kind of differentiate the teams that can make a a three four game run to an Elite Eight or a Final Four with the teams that can actually win six games to win a national championship. So, obviously, Michigan State, I mean, the teams we've talked about, Michigan State, Kentucky, Kansas, uh, I, I like Louisville a little bit more than you, but that's fine, whatever. Is there a team or two out there that, you know, somewhere maybe in the 10 to 20 range that that you feel like is being undervalued, or is there anybody outside that group that you're like, honestly, this team is every bit kind of as good as these teams, and like it wouldn't totally shock me to see them win six games in the title.
0: Uh, I think Florida is very, very interesting to me. Um, I love their guards. I think that Kerry Blackshear was just such an important addition because he provides balance for them. You know, he gives them somebody to score on the post on a team that has a ton of guards, a ton of guys that can score on the perimeter, a ton of guys that could space the floor, um, but that didn't have anyone that they could just give the ball to on the block and know what they're getting. I think so. My thing with Blackshear, I think how good he is has been kind of overvalued. A little I bit, like I, I, I,
2: was gonna I don't like.
0: I, I've seen lists of him being like a top five player in college basketball, and I don't think he's that. But I think that he's the kind of guy that is. Uh, it's just such a perfect fit for that role that he's going to end up being a very, very effective player. It's like the same thing. So I made the point about Yudoka Azebuki before. Um, I have him as the number four player in college basketball, and that's not because I think that that he's good, like, the best pro or something like that. Or five years down the road, we're going to be looking at Azubuki versus James Wiseman and saying that Azubuki is a better player still. But I think that given the way that the college is set up, given the fact that there are not uh, – there like there's no Villanova here. There's no team that has like nine guards that are going to be able to space the floor. There's not really anybody that has all these great perimeter – shooting big men like you're not going to find seven footers that can handle the ball shoot the ball and and move on the perimeter the way that you do in the nba so i think that you can have kind of those big guys that thrive and i think udoka azabuki is going to be that guy same thing with Kerry blackshear just the fit with him um in the post i think on that roster just makes too much sense i think andrew nimhard is going to take a step forward i think uh blackshear understands how to fit like he averaged 14-7 and seven last year for a Virginia Tech team where he was the third option offensively behind Nikhil Alexander-Walker and Justin Robinson where he was asked to score in the post and score on the perimeter and where he played on a team that played four guards. That's exactly what this Florida team is going to be. Andrew Nembhard is going to be awesome. Um, I think that the two freshmen they got coming in, Scotty Lewis as like kind of the defensive presence and Trey Mann as the score, I think they're both going to end up being awesome. I think that Noah Locke and Keontae Johnson back for their sophomore seasons are going to be really good. And the most important thing, is they get rid of Kevon Allen and they get rid of Jalen Huntson, who are just like super inefficient shot jackers that are going to open everything else for everybody else. So, uh, give me Florida. I think I got them for, a, I got them at a title future. I want to say 33 to one. And I think they're like 17 to one now. So I'm feeling really good about that one. You can kind of beat the market that well. Uh, I, I think that's good. And if, um, if like I had to take another one, I kind of. What do you think about Oregon? Because I feel like oh, Oregon is dude, super undervalued at this point.
2: See, I, I actually feel the exact opposite. and Oregon, fans hate really? me right now. Yeah, I just I'm not. And you know, there's some uh, you know more conversations that we can have off air about um, you know Dana Altman's uh, new recruiting philosophy over these last couple years. But um, like I just look at them and. <sighs> I feel differently about Peyton Pritchard than you do. Like I've I heard your Pac-12 podcast, and I'm always interested in hearing other people on the Pac-12 because I think it's kind of an undervalued league this year. But you know, like I don't think of him as like the consummate winner and like all that kind of stuff. Like it's kind of like I'm not gonna like I'm not gonna get into his career history here. But like the point I'm trying to make is you have a bunch of like really like like talented freshmen. You're taking a bunch of transfers, um, and you're just like throwing them all together and hoping it sticks. And like we have a one-year sample size where that like that didn't really work for Oregon last year. Now you could argue Bowl Bowl got hurt. I get that, uh, but for most of the year they weren't very good. They got hot late, and so it kind of overshadowed some of their you know flaws or inefficiencies or whatever. But like I- I'm just sitting here like this is one, we don't know what's going to happen with Infali Dante. I personally kind of think Infali Dante is overrated anyway. No disrespect to an 18-year-old kid. I think it's incredible that he did the work needed to get to college this year for a kid that's new to the United States, doesn't speak English, all that stuff. But it's like, I don't think he's ready to play in college. Um, You know, Anthony Mathis, who is a transfer from New Mexico, like I'll just say it since it's on the public record: is I was at Mountain West Media Day a few weeks ago, and the New Mexico players were asked if they were disappointed that he left the program, and they basically said no, like just flat out no, we weren't upset that he left. Um, and so I just think it's 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 that thing, it's that you know, it's it's the college basketball thing that's so unique to college basketball. Where listen, we all understand it's the step before the step. Everybody wants to get to the pros, but I do think some of these coaches do a really good job, Calipari's one, Coach K generally is pretty good, of, of allowing kids to kind of put everything aside and like focus on the team. By the way, that's the really interesting thing about Penny Hardaway this year, is he going to be able to do the same, and I just think that that Oregon team, there's just so many guys that want to be the guy, and the talent is indisputable. I just, after what I saw last year, and again, I understand Bol Bol was hurt, but I just worry about the chemistry with that team, and I'm not sold that everyone's going to put their ego aside so they can raise a Pac-12 title banner in, uh, you know, in Eugene.
0: So I would make the argument that Oregon actually got better after Bowl Bowl got hurt. I would too, uh, and that's, that actually—that's my point. Yeah, but sorry. That yeah. that that has a lot to do um, with my opinion of Bowl Bowl than it does with my opinion of Dana Altman. Like, I think that uh, I don't know. How, how can I how can I phrase this? Um, I don't know if Bo Ball was necessarily high on Dana Altman's list of players to target, and I think that his just inability to be anything on the defensive end, uh, I think that it hurt Oregon more having him on the floor. And I think the reason they made their run down the stretch is because when they figured everything out, they had Kenny Wooten at the five. And they played that same kind of style and that same kind of lineup that they played when uh, Jordan Bell was there and they made it to the Final Four. I say all that to say this. And finally, Dante is not the right fit for Oregon at the five. Like he is – remember when they had the, – the team with Jordan Bell in 2017, when the big guy – I can't remember what his name is off the top of my head. But they had the 6'11 dude that was like 170 pounds. Chris Boucher. Shot.
2: That's my guy. Yes, Chris
0: Boucher. There you go. So when he, he went down with like a wrist injury – and Oregon got better because they were actually able to defend and they played the way that that made the most sense for um, for Dana Altman. And I think with Francis Socorro at the five, I think he's a much better fit for that than Infale-, Infale Dante will ever be. So you take that, you add in the shooting of Anthony Matthews, you add in the scoring ability of Chris Duarte, the Juco transfer. You throw in C.J. Walker, who's that just kind of like like hyper-athletic uh, kind of small ball, whatever, like a Dwayne Benjamin kind of player, a guy that can get buckets, like that, that kind of like weird tweener um, combo forward that's super athletic. I think that really works well in the way that that, um, that Dana Almond wants to play. You add a shooter in Anthony Mathis, you throw in um, – uh, what's the kid's name? The lefty that's coming back, Will Richardson, who I, I, I think I have this right. I can't remember if this is exactly right and I'm not going to look it up right now. But I believe that he actually was the leading scorer in the state of Georgia – when he was a junior and Colin Sexton was a senior, that's how good wow. he can get that like that's how good he is. That's the kind of buckets that he can get. And when you look at guys that have had success for Dana Alban over the years, like a Tyler Dorsey, like a Joseph Young, you just kind of got these like weird score first point guards that are kind of not really built for the NBA, but can go out and get you 20 points a game in the Pac 12. And then you throw in Peyton Pritchard, who I just I'm enamored with. I think that he's super underrated. I think he is Um, you know, he's been to a final four. He led a team that had like three NBA guys to the final four. He led it last year's team. He got them going and and was their best player down the stretch. And I think he's going to be, uh, you know, all American caliber this year. I think he's right there with like McKinley, Wright And some of these other guys for PAC 12 preseason player of the year. Um, I I just, I I really like what this Oregon team has. And, um, I think Dana Allman, you know, it didn't work last year, but if you look at the, the totality of his career, he's been pretty good at finding, a way to get like all of these new pieces and new faces to kind of buy in and run his system so it's definitely a risk and it's definitely not like a guaranteed thing but i think at this point i believe there's still like 40 to 1 odds to win the title and that's just that's that's too good especially if you use one of these sites a lot of these online sites what they'll let you do is uh you can cash out yeah um, if the that bet changes So it's, it's very interesting if you can get them at 40 to one and then by February, they're like 15 to one and you can kind of cash out and more than double your money. That's something, that's something that I've done a lot of.
2: We got to get freaking legalized gambling in California here. Cause I'm, I, I, you know, whatever, no, no comment. I'm using, uh, you know, some of these, uh, offshore sites and all that stuff. And listen, I, 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 you know, I fully support, uh, all of those, but like there was one last year I, I got Texas tech at. I want to say thirty-three to one or something, and I—I I, literally the week of the final four, I tried to cash it out and they wouldn't let me. So I got to get that whatever website you're using. I got to get in freaking California. But, uh, yeah. So that was my big Oregon take. Anyway, I—I I, I totally see what you're saying. I get it. I listen. I know probably more coaches in the Pac-12 than anybody else, and I don't think anybody disputes that they are the most talented team in the conference. I just have my doubts. And it's not that Dana Altman is not a good coach. It's just I have my doubts that he's going to be able to basically herd cats this year because I just think you got two or three seniors that are are, are grad transfers that are trying to you know get to the next level. You had a couple reclassification kids really late show up to campus and Folly Dante, we don't even know if he's going to play. Um, yeah, I just have my questions. I do think they will be one of the more interesting watches in college basketball rob we've done this for 40 minutes uh i'll just ask really quick i opened with thirty thousand foot view big picture stuff anything that we've missed anything that you want to talk about i mean like you said i feel like we've talked about everything there is to talk about for the last six months but is there anything else that's on your mind as we're now uh, a couple days away from the start of the season
0: man i'm just i'm just so ready for this you know I, i feel like college basketball has the longest off season Of any sport and it's done in the first week of April and we have to go all the way until the first week in November to get it. And I love the fact that we have now the Champions Classic to really kick things off. Like it it always felt like we didn't have that opening night and we have it now, man. Number one against number two and number three against number four in Madison Square Garden. There's no better place – in America, to watch a neutral court basketball game in the Garden, especially when you have fan bases like as big as those Blue Bloods and as big as Michigan State's coming to town, so I could not possibly be more fired up for that game, for that that those those two games, for the doubleheader. So let, let's do it, man. Let's get it going. I'm so ready for basketball to be here.
2: Yeah, I'll say this, and this is something I, I have said quite a bit: is that college basketball gets criticized for a lot of things, but the one thing that I give credit to. The people behind the scenes, the television people, the athletic departments, there are some there are some really good games, not just in the Champions Classic, but then you have the Gavit games, you have Maui, you have Atlantis, you have uh, ACC Big Ten Challenge, and you basically get good games from November 5th until... Um, until uh, until conference play starts and you get conference play. So, all right, Rob Douster, of course, he is uh, the College Basketball Insider, NBC Sports, host of the NBC Sports College Basketball Podcast. You can follow him on Twitter, at Rob Douster, D-A-U-S-T-E-R. Dude, we always have fun, man. I appreciate you doing this, and you know I'll be bugging you again soon, my man.
0: Yeah, definitely, man. Anytime you need it, man, hit me up.
2: All right, so I want to thank Rob Douster for joining me uh, if you listen to this show, if you have listened to the show, I've had on Rob many times. He's a good friend of mine. I've known him forever, and I really do think that he is one of the guys that that maybe as good as anybody. I would include myself. I would include myself in this mix, by the way. But as good as anybody talking college hoops, contextualizing college hoops, it's clear that as you listen to him, kind of break down depth charts and and Duke starting lineups and lineup stuff like it's very clear that this guy has a passion for the sport I think he's incredibly good at what he does uh, and he's been a friend of mine forever but I don't bring him on because he's a friend I bring him on because he's really good so thank you to Rob and I will be having Rob on throughout the season all right real quick I want to give you my champions classic picks and then my final four national championship picks as I said I got a little bit of a surprise coming in the final four uh, but I will get to that in a minute. I want to start with the Champions Classic, and I want to start just by something very simple. Keep in mind, it's one game. We're gonna overanalyze it again. As a quick reminder, as a quick side note, I will be coming on. I will do a show on Tuesday night post Champions Classic. So, um, you know, most of the, the the second show of the week usually comes out on Wednesday, on Thursday morning. This one will come out on Wednesday morning. I'll do it right after the Champions Classic. But in terms of the games themselves, look. We're going to overreact. It's what we do, whether it's me, whether it's Rob Dowster, whether it's Jay Billis, whether it's Matt Jones, Kentucky Sports Radio. Like, we're all going to react to the games because that's what we do. But I think it's important to remember it is just one game. This isn't college football. You don't win or lose the national championship on the opening night of the season. And I think there's probably no better example of that than last year. I mean, look, think about the two games in the Champions Classic last year. Game one, Michigan State loses to Kansas. Kansas's best player is Quentin Grimes. Quentin Grimes looks like a lottery pick. Looks like a one and done. He ends up being bad. Kansas ends up being the fire festival of college basketball. Quentin Grimes has now transferred. And oh, by the way, little Michigan State, the the poor little sisters of the poor that looked awful on opening night, ended up going to the final four. In the second game, I think you all kind of know what happened. Um, But Duke, you could argue that was probably the best game that Duke played all year. And they never really got better after that game. And if you watch that game, remember the commentary that was coming out of that game? Could Duke beat the Fab Five? Would Zion start for the Fab Five? Would Duke go undefeated? Well, they didn't go undefeated. They didn't even make the Final Four. Uh, in Kentucky, the team that lost to them made it just as far in the NCAA tournament as they did. So let's not overreact. I'll just give you my real quick picks in the first game. I like Kansas pretty convincingly. Um, Rob and I talked about it. I'm not sold on Duke. Well, it's two things. One, I'm not sold on Duke. I just don't believe, I don't like their guys. Like, I like their guys individually, but as a group, as a unit, I don't buy it, right? Like, like think about the roster. Trey Jones, really good at point guard. We don't know if he can shoot. The wings, I like Wendell Moore. He's probably the player that I like the most on this, that team. But Cassius Stanley, he's an athlete that can't shoot. He grew up in SoCal. I saw a ton of them. Can't shoot. He's an athlete. He can dunk, great dunker but I don't know what he does besides that. Alex O'Connell, great three-point shooter, but he doesn't defend. Matthew Hurt, I'll be honest, I don't really see the hype. I don't really get it. I don't get what all the buzz is about. Vernon Carey, as I kind of said with Rob, like that guy, I don't think he can do anything more than five feet from the basket. Yeah, if you throw the ball to him in the post, he can dunk it, but he's going up against Adoka bouquet and Silvio D'Souza. So I, I think Duke's going to struggle. And I like Kansas. I I like their roster. I like their makeup. As I said with Rob, listen, anybody who listens to this show knows I've been very critical of Bill Self over the last couple months, over the last year. I think what he did was pretty messed up. I think it's pretty obvious that he was cheating just as much as anybody in college basketball. Everybody wants to crush Will Wade. Everybody wants to crush Sean Miller. Bill Self was just as bad as him, but that doesn't take away from the fact that on the court this year, his team is going to be really good. And As I said to Rob, He's a guy that historically has done his best work with teams that don't have the one-and-done elite talent, that don't have the Andrew Wiggins, that don't have the Kelly Oubre, that don't have those kinds of guys. And so I look at this team, it's a bunch of vets. Devon Dotson's a sophomore. Um, uh, Isaiah Moss, grad transfer. Adoka Azabuke, senior. Silvio D'Souza, third year. These are guys that have been around the block. These are guys that have played major college basketball. Marcus Garrett's another one. He's been there three or four years. So I like Kansas in that game. In the second game, listen, I'll tell you this. Rob and I recorded before the second Kentucky game, second Kentucky exhibition game against Kentucky State. I do like Michigan State because I'll tell you this on Kentucky. This isn't being critical of them because you'll hear in a minute that I I actually like Kentucky in the bigger picture of the season. I do think that I thought that Ashton Hagens and EJ Montgomery would be further along than they are in this process, and I do think P.J. Washington kind of spoiled not only Kentucky fans but college basketball fans in that if you come back for your sophomore year, the light bulb is going to flicker on, and you're going to figure it out, and you're going to go from really good as a freshman to stud as a sophomore. EJ Montgomery isn't there yet. Ashton Hagans I think, is a little bit further along, but you know he's not taking over games the way that I thought he would. I think you can make a legitimate case that Emmanuel Quickly has been their best player in the preseason. I like Tyrese Maxey. like what I've seen from Keon Brooks, from Nate Sestina. Michigan State's a veteran team, though. Um, I think the key to that game will be getting the ball out of Cassius Winston's hands. They don't really have a ball handler besides Cassius Winston. Michigan State had 17 turnovers in their exhibition win against Albelin, I think is the name of the school. Albion, something like that. So if they have 17 turnovers against them, I think they can have quite a few more against Kentucky, but the question is, is anybody ready to step up offensively for Kentucky? I think the answer is no. Um, doesn't mean that either team, as I've said, either a team that loses or either a team that wins, doesn't mean that their season's over, doesn't mean anything like that, it just means that it's opening night, we get two great matchups, but I am not going to overreact to them. So those are my Champions Classic picks. I like Kansas. I like Michigan State. As of right now, I haven't seen a point spread, but I would probably make, uh, you know, I think Kansas, I saw, uh, the point spread that I did see, and it was unofficial, was like Kansas four and a half. I would probably take Kansas, and I would probably take Michigan State. Final four. All right. Here's my final four. I'll have my picks also on my Instagram page, Aaron underscore Torres underscore sports underscore podcast. Final four. Actually, before I do final four, national player of the year. My National Player of the Year pick, Cole Anthony, University of North Carolina. Here is why. ESPN controls the narrative in sports. And I say that and it hurts me because I work for Fox. And I think we do incredible work at Fox. But unfortunately, ESPN does largely control the narrative, especially in college basketball, where they still broadcast the vast majority of games. And ESPN does a really good job of picking one player College player a year to just totally hype up and totally make the sport about. And if you're if for the longtime listeners of this show, you know that two years ago I was very critical of the coverage of Trey Young. Everything was about Trey Young. We had a Trey Young shot meter in games that he wasn't playing in. He'd be playing on ESPN two. The game on ESPN would have a Trey Young shot meter. It's like, dude, he's not that good. Like he's fine. He's not, he's he's great, but he's not that good. Last year it was Zion Williamson who was awesome. Previous years, it was Lonzo Ball, it was Ben Simmons. There's always one guy that we build the whole college basketball narrative around. And so I bring that up because I think this year it's going to be Cole Anthony. One, I think statistically he's going to put up really good numbers because I don't trust the guys at North Carolina. I've told you this. I've said it all off season. I don't buy a team that is relying on grad transfers transferring up from the lower level. I think there's a reason you start at the lower level. And it's very rare that you get a guy that can transfer up and have an immediate impact. Even a place, think about Reed Travis at Kentucky last year. He was at Stanford. He was in the Pac-12. And he struggled at times at Kentucky. Anyone that's in their fifth year of college basketball or fourth year of college basketball is there for a reason. It's because they're not good enough to be a pro. And so North Carolina is going to have two grad transfers in their starting lineup. Their returnees besides uh, the transfer, the grad transfers aren't that good. And the other freshmen aren't that good. Ar- 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 Ooh, excuse me. Armando Bacat is pretty good. I don't know that he's like a total X-factor difference maker. And so I think Cole Anthony, I think he will be a close approximation to what Trey Young was two years ago. I don't think he's going to lead the country in scoring and assists like Trey Young, but I think he's going to get 23-24. I think he's going to play on a super high-profile North Carolina team. I think he's going to have to do a lot of, you know, he's going to have to score a lot because the team needs him to score a lot. And I think the fact that he's Greg Anthony's son is a factor. For people who don't know, he's the son of former uh, UNLV star, former New York Nick Greg Anthony, played in the NBA. And I also think, like, North Carolina plays a lot on ESPN. It does ESPN. It makes sense for ESPN to gas these guys up. They did it with Zion last year. They did it with Trey Young the year before. I think they're going to do it with Cole Anthony. I think he's going to be statistically worthy of the national player of the year. I don't buy North Carolina. I bring that up because I think he's going to do enough nationally to put himself at the top. I think he wins national player of the year. Two other guys to watch out for. I love Devon Dotson at Kansas. Again, I think Kansas is going to be really good. I think they're going to be in the mix all year. And I think he's going to put up really good stats. I think he's going to be a guard version of PJ Washington, a sophomore who decided to come back with fringe first round, late late you know early second round pick, comes back, all American type season, goes pro. Obviously catches Winston, and then Marcus Howard. And I think Marcus Howard is going to do incredible things. I may have told this story on the podcast, but when all my preseason top twenty five stuff came out, uh, I had a, a assistant coach from the Big East text me, and he said, "Dude." You guys in the media are gassing up Miles Powell over at uh, Seton Hall. He goes, Marcus Howard is so much better, and he's so much harder to game plan for. And so when that guy told me that, from a Big East Conference school that has to play these guys twice a year, sometimes three times a year, that stuck with me. So I like Marcus Howard, Cassius Winston, Devon Dotson, but ultimately I think Cole Anthony's national player of the year. All right, really quick, Final Four. First team, Michigan State. Don't think it's a big secret, but listen. Every year, the veteran teams always have a ton of success. Michigan State has veterans. They probably have the best player in college basketball, even though I know I just said Cole Anthony's going to win national player of the year. Cassius Winston's the best player in college basketball. He gets others involved. I think they have enough around him. Aaron Henry, the guard, um, is really good at NBA draft prospect. Thomas Kithier, who I broke the story last week, uh, suffering from a broken nose, but he's an effective guy down low. Xavier Tillman is an effective guy down low. I don't know that Michigan State has all the answers night one against Kentucky. I did pick them to win, but they got a tough schedule. They play Kentucky, they play Duke, they play potentially Kansas in the Maui Invitational, they play at Seton Hall. So they got a tough schedule. I don't think they're gonna be one of these teams that going into Big Ten play, they're you know 13-0. I think they might be 10-3 or 9-3 or whatever it ends up being. I think they're going to take some losses, but I think they're the best team going into the season. I Veteran teams do well in March. They have the experience. I think they get to the Final Four. Second team, I like Louisville. Chris Mack, friend of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, has nothing to do with anything, but you should go back and listen to that interview. Bottom line with Louisville is this. Chris Mack, I mentioned it a minute ago, actually, is two years ago at Xavier, he had a very similar team to this. A lot of veterans mixed with young guys that were well-regarded recruits. And so I think when you look at the guys that he has, yes, there's questions at point guard. Fresh Kimball, is he the answer at point guard? But you also have Jordan Wars, the best player in the ACC. You have vets at basically every position. And then they're supplemented by really good freshmen. Samuel Williamson's really, really, really good. Aiden Agahan, who Chris Mack kind of had a funny story when he came on this podcast, talked about he never really lifted before he went, you know, he was the guy that went to 24-hour fitness, did a couple bicep curls, flexed in the mirror, and then left. I think that guy's gonna be good by the end of the year. David Johnson's gonna be good by the end of the year. I do think that Louisville, a lot like as I mentioned a minute ago, Michigan State, like I think it's gonna be a process. I do think it's gonna be a process. I don't think they're gonna have all the answers. I don't think that they're going to be perfect to start the season. They open the season on the road in an ACC game on opening night at Miami, which is just insane. I do think they win that one, but like, yeah, they're another team. Like, if they take two or three losses in the preseason, I wouldn't be surprised. Again, David Johnson is hurt. Malik Williams, one of their big guys, is hurt, but I think they figure it out by late. I think they go deep in the tournament. Third team in the Final Four, <laughs> I know I just criticized him. I like Kentucky. I really do. I think by the end of the year, Ashton Hagen's and E.J. Montgomery are both playing as veterans. Everything's sped up when you get to Kentucky. By the middle of your freshman year, you got to be a sophomore. If you make it to your sophomore year, you're a junior or senior. I think by the middle of the year, E.J. Montgomery figures it out. I think Ashton Hagen's figures it out. I like Tyrese Maxey. I actually think Emmanuel Quickly might be their best player. Like I think he might average like 16 a game this year. It sounds crazy, but he's been instant offense in the preseason. I also like some of the guys that I didn't think I would like. I think Keon Brooks is further along than I thought he would be. I think Nate Sestina fills a lot of holes. And so I look at this roster. They have more experience than they've ever really had in the last couple years. I mean, the last couple years, they've had returnees, but McDonald's All-American kind of guys, like Ashton Hagens, like EJ Montgomery, I can't remember the last time they had guys like that. They had P.J. Washington last year. They didn't really have that guard, though. I mean, Quad A Green, I guess, but anyone who followed Kentucky—no disrespect to Quad A Green—like he wasn't going to be that guy at Kentucky. So I, I, I like them. I think Ashton Hagens figures it out by the middle to the end of the season. I love the backcourt. All right, fourth team. <laughs> I've teased it. I've promised you. I've told you. I've said there's a team that nobody's talking about that I like to go to the Final Four. Before I do, I'll remind you because AT does this sometimes. That. Um, Last year, I was—I have to imagine. Maybe I'm wrong. I have to imagine I'm the only guy in the national media that picked Auburn to go to the Final Four. I did pick them, though. The year before, as I said, I had Xavier going to the Final Four. They didn't get there, but they were the number one seed uh, in the West Region. They were a number one team in the country throughout most for throughout a reasonable chunk of the season. And so, who is this year's Xavier? Who is this year's Auburn? By the way, what do those teams have in common? veterans who have won a lot, veterans who are overlooked coming into the year. And so here is my fourth Final Four team. You guys are going to think I'm crazy. I like, drum roll please, (laughs) Western Kentucky, no, I'm not kidding. No, not Western Kentucky. I like the Baylor Bears. The Baylor Bears, it sounds preposterous, but hear me out on this. Here's my deal with Baylor. First of all, last year, I don't think people realized They were picked to finish ninth in the Big 12. They completely overachieved and finished fourth. Their best player, Tristan Clark, got hurt early in the season. They still end up finishing fourth. They make it to the NCAA tournament. They upset Syracuse in the first round. They get a tournament win there. And they bring back basically everybody, six out of their top nine scorers. They have two big-time transfers. They actually lost a player in the preseason, which I actually think helps them. Mario Kegler creates some... Um, more playing time for some of the other guys. And so they fit the profile of an Auburn last year, of a South Carolina a few years ago, of these teams that are, are veteran teams. They're going to be overlooked coming into the season, but they've had success as a group, and this is the next level. And I know people are critical of Scott Drew. Let's never forget, Scott Drew has made two Elite Eights. So it's not as though this is a guy that has never made it uh, to, this, to, to deep in the tournament. He's made a couple other Sweet 16s. Oh, and one other thing. I talked to Scott Drew this summer, and he kind of told me, like, yeah, I like my guys. I don't know how I feel. You know, We'll see how we feel. I think his exact quote is, you can never account for injuries or chemistry, but he's like, I like my guys, and a lot of coaches won't tell you that, but he told me that in an interview I did for a story that I was working on. Uh, look, Kansas is going to get more buzz in the Big 12. Texas Tech is going to be Texas Tech, and I love Chris Beard. You guys know that. Friend of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. He came on a couple years ago. But I think Baylor, they're that team that's going to get in as like a 3 or a 4 seed, but they're going to be battle-tested, play in the Big 12, um, maybe get an upset that goes their way, and I think they're going to be playing for a chance to go to the Final Four. So that is my college basketball preseason predictions. Final Four, Kentucky, Louisville, Michigan State, Baylor, Cole Anthony, um, National Player of the Year. And I guess if you put a gun to my head, I would say Michigan State over Louisville for the national championship. I know a lot of you Kentucky fans are going to hate me for it. Um, I like this group from Chris Mack. And certainly, Kentucky's going to have a chance to prove me wrong um, because they play Louisville early in the season, and we'll see if they make it to the Final Four, uh, if they can hold up. But that is my national championship Final Four picks. Don't hate me, but that is who I like. All right, fun show today. Started with Willie Taggart went to Rob Douster, talked to little Bob Stoops, talked to little Mark Stoops, talked a little AT in his final four picks. That's it for today's Tour Sports Podcast, though. Remember, if you're not subscribed, you better get subscribed because college hoop season is here. You can do it on iTunes, do it on Podcast Addict, you can do it on Podbeat, you can do it on TuneIn Radio, you can do it on Spotify. Make sure to rate and review the show. Give us a quick five stars. Tell me how much you hate my picks in the five stars. As long as you give me a five stars, you can tell me how much you hate my picks. Uh, Also, if you have any questions, Aaron Torres Podcast questions at gmail.com. I would add, if you guys are going to be in Vegas for the, the CBS Sports Classic, let me know. Trying to figure out if it would make sense to do something with you guys out there. Keep me posted. And also the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast Instagram page. Aaron underscore Torres underscore sports underscore podcast. And again, A quick programming note, I will be back Tuesday night recording Champions Classic Recap for Wednesday. Next show drops a little earlier, and I don't know if I even mentioned this off the top. Alabama head coach Nate Oates joins me. I already recorded with him. I enjoyed it. We did about 15 minutes. We talked Bama, and then I'll probably preview a little bit of Bama LSU. So that is all for today's show. I'm exhausted. Shout out to my boy Torrent Craig, and I will be back earlier this week on Tuesday night, but I will be back and we will speak soon.